When people start out in the ministry, they do the best that they can. But sometimes, even their very best falls a little bit short. I can remember my first Sunday as the director of youth ministries at a Baptist church north of Boston. I was 23 years old, and I was so excited and so nervous. And on that Sunday, I had two tasks. I had to teach a Sunday school class for students, and I had one simple task in the Sunday morning worship service, which consisted of standing up, welcoming the congregation, introducing myself, and giving the morning announcements. And as I grabbed the microphone and stood in front of those 200 people or so with my adrenaline pumping, my excitement raging, and my nerves quaking, my mouth became very dry. That nervous cotton mouth feeling. And I awkwardly made my way through the things that I was going to say, and then I sat down to listen to the sermon. And after the service, a very kind woman and slightly condescending woman came up to me and said, you know, Nick, next time you speak in front of the church, you should probably take the gum out of your mouth. I learned very quickly that sometimes in ministry you have to take one on the chin. So I politely said thank you, and she walked away. And the truth of the matter is, is I didn't have any gum in my mouth. <laughs> but I was so nervous that I sloshed my way through the simple words that I was supposed to speak, and it was barely intelligible, apparently. <laughs> it wasn't a good start. You know, most people in ministry have even more stories of a rough start, some much rougher than that, but all do in some way at times fall short. All except for one. And as we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, we see the day that Jesus begins his public ministry. And unlike me, he didn't slosh his way through his words. Unlike all ministers, he didn't fall short. In these few verses, we see exactly how he started and how he set the theme for what he was going to be doing and saying for the next handful of years. And so follow with me, Mark chapter 1. This morning we start at verse 14 and read just briefly through verse 20. This is what it says. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The public ministry of Jesus begins with an arrest. Thousands had either seen or heard of the baptism by John in the Jordan River. And after being tempted by Satan in the desert and withstanding the temptation, Mark 1 tells us that just as Jesus begun, John the Baptist was arrested. Now we'll learn more about that later, but it's not an insignificant historical note. You remember John's message, says it in verse four, John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as all of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and confessing their sins, you might say that he was causing a bit of a stir. Now, it doesn't tell us what he was arrested for. It doesn't tell us who was behind it at this point. Was it the religious leaders who didn't like the message? Was it the local king or magistrate who didn't like the excitement and the mobilizing of the masses? Mark doesn't tell us yet. But the fact that his arrest corresponds with the beginning of Jesus's ministry is not mere coincidence. As John's mission was nearing an end and Jesus's a beginning, the arrest would foreshadow some things that were to come. John's arrest shows that the ministry of the gospel would be proclaimed through persecution and suffering. It would not be comfortable. His arrest and his eventual death would foreshadow Jesus's own arrest and death for this same message, the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And John's suffering would not only foreshadow Jesus's suffering, but also the suffering of his followers. Because as the gospel of John was written somewhere in the 60s probably, the Christians of the first century were under intense persecution by the emperor Nero. And it was not just the followers of Jesus in the first century that would experience suffering, but by extension, many throughout history would suffer for the sake of this good news. The road of the gospel is not a road of comfort. It's the road of difficulty. And from the very beginning, John shows that to be true. But as Jesus begins his public ministry, his message was an announcement that had three points of emphasis to it. He came to announce the kingdom of God. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The message had three parts. The kingdom's at hand, repent, believe. 
Let's consider them. The announcement of the kingdom of God was an announcement of the rule and the reign of God on earth. That's a simple definition of God's kingdom. It's not a castle or a physical kingdom on this earth. It's not marked by the elements of military might or economic prosperity that you would think of earthly kingdoms. The kingdom of God is where the rule and reign of God is present. And Jesus is saying that with his coming to earth, he inaugurates that kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom as the reign of God is being established in a way that it had not before through the coming of his son. Now, for those living under the rule of the Roman Empire, this was an evocative proclamation because the glory of Rome was, world, was known the world over. It had spread throughout the entire known world. The Caesars themselves were considered to be gods among men with divine right that many considered. The kingdom of Rome was expansive all the way from Europe into the Middle East and Jerusalem. The reach of this European city was strong. And if there was glory to be associated with a kingdom, it was to be associated with Rome. If there was glory to be associated with a king, it was to be glory given to Caesar. But Jesus comes announcing a different kingdom. And by extension, a different king. Now this idea of the kingdom of God and pointing to his own kingship, Jesus' own kingship, will be one that is one of the reoccurring themes throughout the gospel of Mark. He describes it in a variety of ways, the kingdom, to help us and his hearers in the first century understand Here's just a couple. Mark chapter 4, 26, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seeds on the ground. And he goes on to tell a parable about the kingdom. Mark 9, 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Mark 10, 14, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Or Mark 10, 23, Jesus looks around to his disciples, saying how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Or Mark 12, 34, when Jesus saw that the man had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And for many of us, that prompts a sense of urgency. But for some of us, we lack that urgency. Not because we desire the glory of the kingdom of Rome, but more like 
the glory of a man named Kevin Baugh. Kevin Baugh has his own country. It's called the Republic of Molossia. And if you don't mind, he'd prefer that you would call him His Excellency Kevin Baugh. After all, he has an impressive khaki uniform with six big medals and a gold braid and epaulets on his shoulders and a blue, white, and green sash. Oh, and there's a general's cap with a gold starburst over the bill. Have you never heard of the public of Melosia? Well, that's understandable because it consists of Kevin Baugh's three-bedroom house and his 1.3 acres of land outside of Dayton, Nevada. And according to an article in the Chicago Tribune, he has a space program, a model rocket, a currency pegged to the value of chocolate chip cookie dough, a railroad, which is model-sized, a national sport, broomball, and his, in his landlocked desert region, he even has a navy, an inflatable boat. And the newspaper goes on to say that Baugh, a 45-year-old father of two, is a micro-nationalist, one of a wacky band of do-it-yourself nation builders who raises flags over their front yards and declare their property to be, as Baugh puts it, the kingdom of me. Now for Kevin Baugh, it's a fun joke. But he's joking about something that all humans actually want to do. To build a kingdom of me. (laughs) And it's the reason that we're in trouble with God. The sovereign God, the ruler of all that he has created. Sin is simply living by our own law instead of God's. Regarding ourselves in a quiet way as his excellency or her majesty. But Jesus announces, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in this announcement, he emphasizes the message of repentance. Now, last week we saw in the first part of the chapter that John made preparations for the coming of the king and he pointed to the king by having a baptism uh, that included repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we talked together about how repentance really consisted of three parts. Do you remember? Part number one, repentance is an acknowledgement of sin. Yes, I actually did sin. (laughs) And today, that in and of itself has many obstacles in our culture, right? The second part of repentance is a contrition or apology for that sin. And the third part of repentance is turning away from that sin. That's what repentance literally means, to turn the other way. Now, I'm sure that most of us have seen a car chase on the evening news at one point or another. And at first... I don't know about you, but at first when I see a car chase, why does it seem like it's always in Los Angeles? Maybe Portland. Um, It's riveting, right? Because at least for most of the men in the room and, and, and probably some of the ladies as well, 
We've all wanted to drive that fast and that recklessly at one point or another. But as you watch further and you see the real danger and the helicopter that hovers above is showing the wide range picture of the car moving down the interstate with police cruisers here and there and the spike strip a mile up ahead and all kinds of other realities, you begin to realize very quickly that there's no escape for this criminal. And the end of this scenario is only going to either be their death or their arrest. And then it hits you because you can't help but think, just stop. (laughs) Just stop the car, man. Stop and turn around. There's safety that comes when you turn around. That's an apt picture of life. Because those who live in sin are heading in the direction of the consequences and punishment. And the gospel calls all lawbreakers to repentance, literally to change their mind and direction of their lives. Jesus proclaims this repentance. This repentance is a posture, it's a desire, it's a decision. And here's the thing, you can't experience the benefits and the joys of a relationship with God without repentance. And as much as we'd like to, it's not possible. Repentance is the first step of experiencing the kingdom, Jesus says. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. And again, he reminds us that repentance is not just a one-time act. It's sure it is the act that happens upon your conversion, but it happens throughout your life. Sincere repentance is continued, is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. This dropping well is not intermittent. Jesus comes, he proclaims the kingdom. He proclaims repentance. And his third point of emphasis is to believe in the gospel. Now, the logical progression is not lost on us, right? Because the kingdom of God is at hand, the access to this kingdom is brought to you by repenting and believing in the gospel. If repenting is turning away from sin, believing is turning toward God. And it's not just a vague belief in God. Jesus introduces them to the gospel, the good news. Ultimately, we know that the gospel is the message of God's forgiveness of sins for those who've rebelled against him through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Here, as he introduces the gospel in Mark chapter 1, the story hasn't played out yet, right? And so he is proclaiming that the good news is simply that the Son of God has come and everything that's going to come after. In his coming, it signals that the kingdom has arrived. And this is good news for anybody who actually and truly desires God. He emphasizes belief. He doesn't call them to do anything at least not yet. 
But the message of faith alone for salvation comes throughout this whole ministry that we're going to read about and the message of the apostles of the New Testament. Mark chapter 5, Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Acts chapter 16, the apostles said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, the apostle Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith or belief apart from works of the law. So from the very beginning, Jesus' ministry is marked by the message of repentance and belief. And these two things happen together, don't they? Spurgeon again says it this way, true belief and true repentance are twins. It would be idle to attempt to say which one is born first. All of the spokes of a wheel move at once when the wheel moves. And so all of the graces commence action when regeneration is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Repentance, however, there must be. So Jesus comes. He announces the kingdom. The way to have access to the kingdom is repentance and belief. And look at what this message produces in some people who hear it. He calls them to be followers or disciples. Verse 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Take a step back. You're starting to see the sequence. The kingdom is here. Repent, believe, follow. For both sets of brothers, there are four elements to their following Jesus. And the same is true for us today. The first is that of an immediate response. They didn't hesitate when the Lord called them and neither should we. How many times have we heard someone say, oh, well, um, tomorrow I will change or tomorrow I will go, but they never do. Immediately, these disciples left their nets and followed him. Some of you are in that place today. Jesus has been calling, you've been delaying. He's been calling you to follow him or perhaps he's been calling you to give up that sin that you are holding on to because you love it so dearly. <laughs> He's been calling you, perhaps, for some of you to take a step forward in faith or to serve him or to commit to a local church or to be baptized. Don't delay any longer. Admirers stand at a distance, but they don't change anything. Followers are willing to change and respond. And Christ never asked for admirers. And he never asked for adherents. He 
regularly spoke about followers and disciples. So follow the example of the disciples and respond immediately because the kingdom of God is at hand. The second dynamic in their response is the significant sacrifice that it presents. Following Jesus meant a sacrifice for them. They left their nets and their jobs to follow him. And that's been the same throughout history. Not everyone is called to leave everything behind, but we certainly should be willing to. Sadly, many of us might struggle to give up just one or two nights a week to follow Jesus. Never mind our whole career, our whole life. We struggle to part with our money to follow Jesus. We struggle to give ourselves away. And yet for these disciples, the sacrifice was great. But it was worth it. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The third dynamic is that they entered into the unknown. They didn't know where Jesus was going to take them. And neither will you. But if the king of the universe is the one who created you, can you not trust him to sustain you in the particulars of life? Trust him and follow him into the unknown because the kingdom of God is at hand. And fourthly, he takes them and gives to them the greatest mission of life. You want purpose? You want meaning behind what you do? these men would become fishers of men. The followers of Jesus would not define the success for their life by how many fish they caught. <laughs> they wouldn't define the success for their life by how much money they made when they sold those fish. They wouldn't define the success for their life based on how big their house was or how many fun vacations they were able to go on or even how well their own kids did. The followers of Jesus had a new mission. The mission was his mission. His agenda for life became their agenda for life. And the core of that agenda is people. There's nothing more valuable to God than people. And therefore, there's nothing more valuable to his followers than people. And this is because kingdom of God is at hand. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, and follow the Lord Jesus. And you will. <laughs> if you want to be in the kingdom of God, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, and follow the Lord Jesus, and you will. You know, it's possible to be a type of follower of Jesus without being a disciple. William Barclay once said, to be a camp follower without being a soldier of a king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a young man, and he said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. And the teacher answered devastatingly, 
He may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There's a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps, Barclay says, of the church, that in the church there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. But what say you? Call, the calling of Jesus back then is the calling of Jesus today. The kingdom of God is at hand. Don't live your life in such a way to think that you will coast all the way to a very distant future. The kingdom is here now. Repent, believe, and follow. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, repent of your sin, believe the gospel, and follow the Lord Jesus, and you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the highest calling, for the greatest purpose, and for the opportunity to be members of an eternal kingdom. I pray for my friends today, God, for a sense of urgency regarding this kingdom, that we would not be caught up in the comfort or the malaise of life and merely think that we can coast through to the end because the kingdom is at hand. We thank you for the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness that he offers when we repent, for the joy that he gives us when we believe, and for the purpose that he gives us when we follow. May we indeed repent, believe, and follow with everything we have. Amen.